Thanks, Jack. Let's pray. Our Lord, give us ears to hear your word and give us the faith to believe it. Lord, would you give us the strength and the will to put it into practice? We pray this because it's good for us and we pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a big chunk of our passage uh, deals with the topic of marriage. And this week, I was pleasantly surprised to read that the divorce rate in Australia is now at its lowest point since no-fault divorce came into effect in 1976. The percentage of Australians who filed for divorce in 2019 was its lowest in 43 years, which is wonderful, but I'll admit, surprising. But as I kept reading, I discovered that while the divorce rate was at its lowest in four decades, the marriage rate is at its lowest ever. Yes, fewer couples are getting divorced, but the biggest contributing factor to that is that fewer people are even getting married in the first place. Australians are increasingly giving up on the idea of lifelong commitment in relationships. And when we add to that the fact that domestic violence and sexual abuse are at all-time highs, it's clear that just as much as ever, our country needs to learn how to love. For something that comes so naturally to us, the sad reality is that not many of us are actually very good at loving. And the problem, I think, is that we have far too small a concept of love. Our love is too little. The modern day definition of love is the good feeling I get when my needs are met. I can say I love you because you make me feel good about myself. But as soon as you do something that makes me feel bad, well, then my love for you vanishes. So clearly we need a definition of love that is bigger than our own individual feelings. And friends, Ephesians 5 gives us just that. Here in this passage, God gives us the ultimate standard of love. And while a large part of our text focuses on the marriage relationship, there really is something here for everyone. Because in verse 21, Paul begins with the general principle that applies to every relationship. Whether this be your relationship with your husband, your daughter, your next-door neighbour, your boss, or the cashier at Woolies, the way you love, verse 21, is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, for the past eight weeks in Ephesians, we've seen again and again and again how the good news about Jesus changes everything about our lives. See, it changes who we are. Jesus gives us a new identity as God's adopted children. It changes where we're going as Jesus rescues us from sin and death and brings us with him into his eternal kingdom. And it changes how we live now as Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin and lives in us by his spirit to help us grow, to help us be more and more like him. So the gospel changes everything about you 
changes who you are, it changes where you're going. And when you put your trust in Jesus, it changes the way that you relate to other people. We submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. If you're a Christian here this morning, this passage tells us that your basic posture in any relationship is one of submission, one of yielding, one of making yourself lower than the other person. Not doing what is only best for you, doing what is best for them. And Paul tells us that we adopt that posture with everyone. It means we bow down in service of the queen and the toilet cleaner alike. And that's because our submission doesn't depend on who they are, but on who Jesus is. We submit to others out of reverence for Jesus. Which means it doesn't matter what you th- whether you think that person deserves your love or your service. They probably don't. But we serve them because Jesus is worth serving. And Jesus says the way that we can serve him is to serve one another. Which means the driving force behind your love for someone is more than just your feelings. You love them because Jesus loves them. I hope you can see here the difference between these two definitions of love. See, our flimsy modern day love says, I'll love you if you make me feel good. But Christian love says, I'll love you because Jesus loves you. Which means we need to love a whole lot of people that we may not actually feel like loving. It also means we'll need to keep loving when the relationship gets strained when hurtful things are said, when the relationship no longer serves your interests. Now, this is the general principle, uh, but if we want to know what this looks like in real relationships, well, we need to keep reading, because in verse 22, Paul begins fleshing out for us three examples, three of the most significant relationships that a person might have. The relationship between a wife and a husband the relationship between a child and their parents, and the relationship between a slave and a master. Now we begin in verse 22 uh, with wives. And Paul writes, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, these verses have caused troubles over the years, haven't they? I suspect there'll be some of you in the room who will hear those words and you'll react against them. They sound offensive. To some people, they sound dangerous. See, the idea that a man should have any authority over his wife is abhorrent to many people. And it's the idea, like, it seems to be supporting the idea that men can oppress, abuse, treat women for their own selfish interests. It seems to support that idea 
that a man can control his wife and use her for his own pleasure. So from the outset, I want to be clear that this is absolutely not what this passage is saying. We're going to come back to look at what it looks like for a wife to submit to her husband in everything. Uh, But first, we need to understand why a wife should submit to her husband at all. Because in verse 23, Paul simply says that the wife should submit to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife. But the question remains, why? Why is the husband the head of the wife? And the reason for that goes all the way back to creation. At God's design for men and women in Genesis 1 and 2. Because in the beginning, God created man, Adam, as the head of the human race. And from Adam, created Eve to be a suitable helper for him. Now, each of them are equal in worth. They were each created by God. They were each created to be like God in his image. But from the beginning, Adam was given primary responsibility in the relationship with his wife. And that pattern of male headship is the pattern that continues to be God's design for marriage. The husband is the head of the wife. Now, it's really important that we see that the head, head does not mean better or more valuable. If you've ever seen a head without a body, well, you'll know that a body or a body without a head, you'll know that one is not better than the other. A head without a body is useless, as is a body without a head. They're different, but they need each other. And so in the same way, men and women are equal in worth, equal in dignity. Both are extremely valuable to God. And so God does not love men more than women. They are equal, but different. And with that difference comes different roles. And to husbands, God has given the role of leading the family. He has delegated authority to husbands to lead their wives. But because it's delegated authority, well, there's there's four really important implications that we need to see. First, because the authority of a husband is delegated, because it's given by God, well, a wife should submit to her husband because... She should submit to God. It's exactly what Paul says in verse 22. He says, wives should submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. The only authority that the husband has is what God gives him. It's like the governor general. The Governor-General is the Queen's appointed authority here in Australia, but the Governor-General has no authority except that which the Queen gives him. And so just as we might submit to the Governor-General out of respect for the Queen, a wife submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ. So that's the first implication. A wife submits because it is God's authority. The second implication is that because the husband's authority comes from God, he should only be obeyed to the extent that he aligns with God's authority. See, the husband operates with God's authority, and so it's not his place to do what God doesn't want. 
And so when a husband demands of his wife something that God forbids, or forbids of his wife something that God demands, it's entirely appropriate and sometimes necessary for the wife to disobey her husband out of reverence for Christ. It wouldn't be honouring to submit to a husband who is undermining God's authority, who is challenging God's authority. So that's the second implication. The third implication is that because a husband's authority is given to him by God, his use and misuse of that authority will be held to account by God. And God doesn't tend to look too favourably on people who abuse power that he has given them. And the fourth important implication is that because a husband's authority is given to him by God, it's given not for his benefit, but for his wife's. When God gives someone authority, he gives it to them for the benefit of the people that they lead. And so the idea of a husband using his authority for his own benefit is completely at odds with why God made him head of the family in the first place. Which is why in verses 25 to 33, when Paul turns his attention to husbands, he repeats three times that husbands must love their wives like Jesus loves the church. He doesn't say love your wife when it suits you. He doesn't say love your wife when she gives you what you want. He says love your wife like the one who set aside his own interests and endured pain and suffering to the point of dying for the sake of his bride. He tells husbands to be dedicated to loving their wives in the same way that Jesus was dedicated to loving his church. And he outlines the way that Jesus is dedicated to loving his church. Take a look. He says Jesus loved the church. Christ gave himself up for the church. Christ cleansed the church by washing her through the word, a reference to baptism. Christ sanctified the church, making her holy. And finally, Christ will perfect the church. He will make it spotless, clean, completely without sin. And it's then that the church will enjoy being one with Christ. You see, Christ has dedicated himself to his church from the beginning of time to the end of time, doing everything required to make her be the thing that it was created to be. And that is the kind of love God expects of husbands. So husbands, be dedicated to your wife from beginning to end. Do everything you can do to help her be the woman that God created her to be. Your authority as a husband is to help your wife flourish and grow as a child of God. That is your responsibility. That is your authority. Which means there's no place for abuse or oppression or violence. It's not your right to demand respect without earning it. It is your role to give your life to serve her. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean giving your wife whatever she wants, but having the strength to give her what is good for her, 
not necessarily what is good for you. So this is marriage as God designed it. Wife willingly submitting. Husband lovingly serving. But both giving out of what they have each received from Christ. But every time this passage comes up, the question comes up too, what does this actually look like in practice? What does it look like for a husband to lead the family in today's context? What does it look like for a wife to submit? Now, it's going to look different in every family because every family situation is different. There's a few principles to guide your thoughts on this. Firstly, authority and headship are not tied to any particular domestic duties. I think quite often we attach to this passage the stereotype of the husband who goes off to work and put food on the table and the wife who stays home to cook and to clean and to have food on the table when her husband walks in the door. Now let me be clear, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. If that is the arrangement that you have in your marriage and you're both happy with that, fantastic, that's great. All I'm saying is that this scripture does not require that. Because remember, a husband's authority isn't tied to his ability to earn a salary. It's not tied to his ability to be the breadwinner. His authority is a gift from God. It's because of who God is that a husband has authority. Which means the wife can be the breadwinner. The husband can stay home and clean. And none of that will threaten God's design for marriage. Now, I think the best way to understand how a husband exercises the authority in the family is to liken it to driving the family car, all right? There's lots of things you could do when you're driving the car. There's lots of things you could attempt to control, but there's one thing you must control, steering. You do not delegate that authority to anyone else in the car when you're in the driver's seat. So when it comes to the things which determine the direction that your family is going, a husband needs to take leadership there. The buck stops with the husband. And so there's four areas that spring to mind. There may be more. Uh, But first is money. How you spend your money as a family is a direct representation of what you value in life, what you think is important, what your priorities are. And so I think a husband needs to take leadership in this. Now, you could be useless with spreadsheets. You might be hopeless at remembering to pay bills on time. You don't need to control every aspect of how you use money. But I think a husband needs to lead when it comes to the family budget. Husband needs to bear the responsibility for deciding what the family will spend money on and what they won't. Secondly is time. Just like a budget, the family calendar is a reflection of what your family values. And so husbands, I think you need to lead. You need to make decisions for your family on how you will spend time. The third area is parenting. I think husbands need to take primary responsibility for decisions about how you will parent your children. Now that doesn't mean the husband needs to 
do every aspect of parenting, but they need to take responsibility for how you will parent as a family. Now, Paul's going to address that later on in the chapter, so we'll come back to that. And the fourth area where it's critical that a husband takes responsibility is in the most valuable thing of all. The best way for a husband to lead his wife is to lead her to Christ. The best way that you can do that in your family is to lead your family in Bible reading and prayer. And so husbands, model it to your family. Drive it. Guard it. That's four areas where I think husbands really need to take the lead. Uh, But let me be clear that that doesn't mean that you should make these decisions in isolation. God's given you a helper. So make these decisions together. It shouldn't be husband versus the family. It should be husband taking responsibility. But make that decision as a family. Make that decision as a couple. But when you do disagree, and you most likely will, it's a husband's job to choose what is best for his family, not necessarily what is best for him. And it's a wife's job to support your husband in that decision. And that means supporting him to his face and behind his back. Now, there's heaps more that we can say about this, uh, but I want us to consider the other two relationships that Paul addresses in chapter 6. So we're going to move on, but let's keep talking about these issues. Uh, But in chapter 6, Paul goes on to address children and parents. And we've sent all the kids out of the room. (laughs) So parents, it's on you to pass this on to your kids. Because in chapter 6, Paul instructs children to obey and honour their parents. And again, they do this in the Lord, which is both a motivator and a qualifier. It's a motivator. Because obeying Jesus is the primary reason that a child will obey their parents. But it's also a qualifier because it leaves open the possibility of a child disobeying their parent when that parent is enforcing things which contradict God's word. Paul also provides a little bribery for kids to obey mum and dad. If they do, God holds out the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long that, that, you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Which presumably means that you can go home and tell your kids that if they don't obey you, they won't live much longer. No, don't, don't say that. Don't say that. Because the very next verse kind of rules that out. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. I should learn that one myself. What's key for us to see is that today, fathers specifically are addressed by Paul as taking responsibility for parenting. And your approach to parenting, dads, should not be to exasperate or frustrate them with unrealistic demands, with shouting, with aggression, but instead to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So dads, take note. The way for you to love your kids is to spend time teaching them to obey their Heavenly Father. That is the best thing that you can do for your kids. 
Well, in verses, uh, sorry, where are we? Six to nine, five to nine. Verses five to nine, uh, we turn to Paul's final example of slaves and masters, which none of us are. And while there is very significant difference between slavery of the first century and paid employment today, if Paul can tell slaves to respect and sincerely obey their masters as if they were serving Jesus, I think it's pretty hard to imagine that he wouldn't hold employees to at least that standard. So if you're a worker, say what you like about your boss, he or she is God's appointed authority for your good. And Jesus expects you to submit to them as if you were serving him. I suspect that might change how we approach our work. Because our work, our leisure, our parenting, our marriage, our relationships, and indeed everything that we do, we do for an audience of one. We do for the one who laid down his own life to serve us. And if we love him... And if we appreciate his generosity to us, we will go and do likewise. So friends, go out this week and love like Jesus has loved you. Don't let your love be limited to your inconsistent and self-interested feelings. Love with consistency, love with energy... Love by submitting to others and sacrificially seeking their good over your own. Friends, love because you've been loved and love because you love Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, your love for us is like nothing else we have experienced. That you, the perfect Son of God, would lay down your life for us, for sinners, for people who wanted nothing to do with you. Our words cannot describe that love. Lord, we have been so richly loved by you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would grow in us just a fraction of that love for others. Lord, may we use Jesus as our example and as our standard in our love for others. May we be willing to submit, to serve, to put ourselves low so that we could lift others up. Grow in us the ability to sacrifice our own interests for the good of others as Jesus sacrificed his place on the throne and his life here on earth for our life. Lord, we need you to grow this kind of love in us. It's alien to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you might. This week, would you grow us, make us loving people. We ask that you would strengthen our marriages. We pray that you would help husbands in the room here to step up and lead their families in the way that Jesus lovingly sacrificed himself for the church. Lord, I pray that you would give wives the strength to submit to their husbands 
out of reverence for you. Lord, I pray that they may support their husbands in leading the family. Lord, I pray for the parents in the room. We pray that they would have the love for their kids that would see them grow and be disciples in the faith of, of our church. Lord, would you enable children to obey you out of reverence for you? But Lord, whatever our relationships, in every relationship this week, Lord, would you help us to love like we have been loved by you. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.